Um, my heart's filled with joy. My heart is filled with joy. You might think, knowing my enthusiasm for the sport of soccer, my heart would only be filled with joy because the World Cup is well underway right now. So there's a few claps. Okay, so I, I knew that would be meager, but that's okay. Um, but man, if you just watch any of the World Cup, tune in just for a little bit and go, okay, what kind of you know, imitation football is this? Um, and uh, and you, want to try to, you want to try to follow along, you'll find very quickly that that full 90 minutes of play involves a lot of passion. I mean, you watch their expressions when they almost score. You watch when they, they score a goal in, in overtime or that stoppage time when they have seconds left and they, they get a, a victory off of a, a free kick or something. I mean, there is nothing that a human can do more to just erupt with, yes, you know, that, like, that expression. It's, it's a lot of fun. I don't know, I get really into it. I absolutely love it. Um, and we've seen some pretty exciting games. Unfortunately, the United States did not qualify. So every four years is the World Cup. So we have to wait four years. But we also heard in eight years, the, the, um, the U.S. and Canada and Mexico will be hosting the World Cup. So I'm kind of excited about that. Um, usually when you host, you're a shoe-in, so you qualify. So that's good for us. Um, so <laughs> we'll be able to kind of play around with these other big countries that have been um, experts at the game for a long time. Uh, but there's been a lot of fun and a lot of excitement in it. And, and if, you, if you kind of study the game of soccer, like many sports, but if you watch the game of soccer closely, you can tell that not every team plays the same way. There's a different style of play. There's, there's different players that have different skills and expertise. Some men are beasts out there. They look like Nephilim. They're so huge. And, and others, they look like they're just running underneath the legs of the other guys. They are so little and quick on the, on the ground. And some teams have just a, a real gel and, and dynamicy with the way that they, the way they work the ball around. And, and one of the things that I was taught growing up playing soccer was that there's different systems of play in soccer. Our coach would always talk with us about that. There's different systems of play, different ways to approach the game. And you'll watch some of these big uh, uh, teams play with all these uh, skillful players. That These are billion-dollar players. They're worth a lot of money. And, uh, and when they come together, you see that some of them are very good at what they do. They've been trained by the best coaches in the world. And you see that they win games based off of how well they train uh, in their style, in their system of play. You'll watch some teams, for example, and it looks like they pass and 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 pass. You're like, where are you going? You're just like going in circles or squares or triangles. And uh, you know the goal's over there, right? Well, there's, there's kind of a thinking behind that. For as long as we have the ball, they don't. Uh, so that's kind of a funny system, but you know what? It actually ends up working a lot of times. Uh, you look at other systems of play where they have these very fast, very aggressive, big guys that play up top, the forward, and so they're not shy about giving them the ball. Whenever they get the ball, they slam it up there, they drive it down, blitzkrieg down the field, and they're, they're ready to go, lightning fast. Uh, there's other systems of play uh, that are more defensive, and they just pack it in. So you actually look at the way they set their defense up and their midfield up, and it looks almost like they're all just like camping out in front of the goal like, don't come in. You know, and, and that's really what they're doing. They're just packing it in. And then they might counterattack occasionally. But, you know, that's a style of play where they minimize goals scored against them. So there's a lot of different techniques, and there are these systems 
to use and employ and where you set your players up matters. You know, one of these systems is not wrong compared to another, but they might cost you a game or two or three. So this morning, we're going to continue with our End Times summer series called Your Kingdom Come. There it is. Your Kingdom Come by looking at the systems of eschatology. So there's different systems of play or ways to set things up. And we need to look at this. Uh, Really, a system is just a set of principles or procedures that you use to get something done. We, we use it and we see it, we don't even think about it. There's systems all, all around us, school systems, government systems with multiple parties, the metric system, which I'm still trying to figure out. Um, and you've got, you've got these different systems. It's the way you set things up. Well, what we're trying to do this summer is we're trying to build something. The crafty guys are like, yeah, what tools do I get to use? You get to use your Bible and your brain and the Holy Spirit. And we're building a theology of the end times. We're, we're putting together almost like systematically and and figuring out how this whole understanding what's going to happen in the last days works. We use the Bible, but not everybody approaches it the same way. There's different systems at play. And what I want to do is just be very upfront with you and tell you that there's there's really two major systems that I've been tasked with this, uh, this morning to talk with you about, and that's covenant theology and dispensational theology. So some of you are familiar with those terms, some of you are not. Either way, I'm excited this morning because I really do believe that once we understand our system, then we'll really be able to understand where we're going and how we can get through the rest of this summer, and we're not going to be scratching our heads going, wait, why was that there and not here? Why did this happen before that? Why didn't we talk about them? And then we're going to be going, oh, that's right, that's a different system. So we're going to figure this out together, and I want to walk um, each of us through it this morning. My objective, really, this morning is to teach you. I want to teach you, best I can, to help you know these different systems of play in regards to end times so that we can handle God's word more accurately. That's important to all of us. We want to handle God's word as accurately as we can. And as we handle God's word accurately we'll be able to have greater biblical discernment and and understanding of what God's big picture plan is. What is God doing? What has he been doing for ages? What is God's plan? What are his purposes? Do they involve me? I'm tiny. I'm over here in this part of history and in the world. Does God's big plan for all time and the ages impact me? So what I want to do is help us learn to love the return of Jesus more. And as we understand our system better, I think it will do just that. So the title here on your sheets, it should say Dispensationalism 101. Um, And and I've I've titled it that way because what I'm intending to do is, is give you a little bit of a this is kind of like, you know, like you start using the 101s, 202s, 201s, 301s. You're talking about college courses, right? Those are like the titles of some of your college courses. So this is kind of like a little bit that high. So some of you college students in here are kind of like, all right, sweet. I've taken a 101 class and I got a B. I've got this. Um, and uh, s- some of you are kind of like, I'm in high school and college is still out there. Um, I think you can hang, all right? If you're... 
If you're under high school and you're thinking, college course, what? Where's college? You know, um, you don't really know where it is. Hey, I, I want you to hang in there. So kids, third grade to eighth grade, third grade to eighth grade, if you can, if you can listen to something this morning, I'm talking to third graders to eighth graders, if you can listen to something this morning, it's significant, and you're able to come talk to me afterwards and say, hey, I learned this this morning from what you talked to us about. I have a sucker for you. All right, so I actually do. All right, blow pops. And so my daughter's holding them right now. She's probably working through half the bag. But um, this, I, you can hang in there. You can do it. So this is my, my way of trying to encourage you. Um, we, can, we can learn something this morning together. So three weeks ago, I introduced the series. In this series, Chris then pointed our attention to the biblical covenants, these promises that God used and gave. And these function as like signposts along a path. Can you picture that? Like you're walking down a trail and there's lots of trees and then you see other trails and you go, where do I go now? Well, when you walk through scripture and you read the Bible, all these covenants are like these signposts that tell you which direction God is leading everything. So that was very helpful and you're going to see how we're going to talk a lot about them this morning again. Um, This morning I'm going to cover the systems of eschatology, kind of a compare and contrast, evaluate and uh, and really stand by one as uh, the preferred one. Next week, so just so you know where we're going next week, I get to steal a little bit of Chris's thunder, um, we are starting to cover the sequence of those end times events. So there's going to be a series of different things that happen in the future from now, we believe, and uh, that starts with the rapture of the church, and it goes to the end of all these different events we're going to talk about, and it is the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. If you ever bought a new car, you know that new car smell? You're like, wow, that's pretty nice. Uh, That's what our world is going to go through. It's going to have a new world smell to it, and it's going to be pretty sweet. So that's at the end. So rapture's coming next week. I want you to know how we get there, though. So let's look, first of all, at our systems. So system one is the covenant theology system. Covenant theology system. Okay, so let's define and describe this now. I want to say this up front, that when you're comparing and contrasting, I understand that uh, some of you might hold to more of a covenant theology position rather than a dispensational position, Um, but these two positions are in large part secondary, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, primary, secondary doctrines. You can look at somebody else who holds a different position that we're talking about here, a different system, and you can rejoice in the Lord that you are brothers and sisters in Christ because these two positions are not about the gospel. They're assuming that you believe the gospel. Those things are in place. So really what we're talking about here is, okay, so two believers looking at the Bible and maybe they approach it a little bit different way. Now, you're gonna have some disagreements on some issues, but as you approach it, you want to try to be as, as like-minded as possible. Well, there's, there's some challenges sometimes when you get into some of these key topics. Now, I will also say this, that my goal in my tact and my uh, approach is to be as respectful and loving um, and, and to make this more of a dialogue than um, it is really to slam another position and say, this one's right. Ha! Raise your hand if you're not this position. See ya. You know, get out of our church. That's, that's not what we're trying to do here, okay? Um, I really do believe that looking at these two systems is really, um, like, healthy for us to think about. 
If you're one side, you're like, I'm a dispensationalist, you have something to learn from covenant theologians. If you're a covenant theologian, you say, I'm so reformed, watch out. You know, and you're like that covenant theology guy, you have stuff to learn from dispensationalists. So, so this is good. We can talk about this and we can be uh, loving and, uh, and this could be good dialogue for us. So, so first of all, I want I to define covenant theology. Defining covenant theology, this is one system. Surprisingly enough, covenant theology does not get its name from the biblical covenants like you might think. It's like going to Shake Shack for a burger. You'd think you're going to Shake Shack for a shake. Um, not their burgers, but you know, they have those too. So it's kind of um, an interesting uh, choice of, uh, of a name there. But, but covenant theology, um, it is not based on the biblical covenants that we looked at two weeks ago. So when you hear the word covenant in covenant theology, what does the word covenant refer to? Well, let me tell you. These are more theological covenants that uh, are used to describe the whole storyline of the Bible. So you're looking at the Bible, trying to make sense of how it's all set up, where God's guiding everything, what he's doing with it. Uh, There are two or three main covenants or promises made by God that guide the storyline of the Bible. These theological covenants are known as the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. Some say that the covenant of redemption and grace go together, but there's distinctions between them. I'll look at them in a second. But covenant theology is really a system of theology that interprets all of Scripture based off of these theological covenants. Let me describe this a little bit. I believe we have a a chart on the next slide. Yes, there it is. Okay, the theological covenants of covenant theology. So I've I've put them up here for you. So you have the one, two, three, and the dark gray there. Let me just kind of work through them as you stare at this cool visual. All right, so covenant theology teaches that God first made a, a covenant of redemption before creation. So think about that. Before time, before matter, before space, God the Father determined who he would save And he determined that the son would be the one to be the savior and salvation would be the big plan before he created. So this was a kind of covenant that was between the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, working out this agreement, this plan. That's that's now the first one. The, The second one is still early on in the Bible. If you look at your Bibles kind of opening up to the beginning, Genesis, and it might even be helpful because we're headed that direction to open your Bibles up to Genesis, the book beginning. So go with your, with, um, your Bible into the beginning. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is kind of where a lot of this is addressing right now. This second covenant that covenant theologians will, will say is exist, in existence here and helps kind of describe things is when before the fall into sin, so that's before what chapter of the Bible? Genesis 3. I saw some fingers go up. That was enough fingers. Good job. So yeah, three, Genesis 3. This is a big uh, part of, um, the, of the, the scriptures and what develops. Man falls into sin. That's a game changer. So before that though, there is a covenant that God promised eternal life for obedience and death for disobedience. Now, this isn't like chapter and verse right there, but this is something that uh, covenant theologians will say, God made this covenant, this promise with man. Adam, though, sinned, and because he was the head of the human race, he plunged every 
everybody else who came from him uh, into a spiritual death. So this covenant of works um, didn't work, uh, uh, frankly. Then the third. Okay, now here's the third covenant, or second if you roll um, them together a little bit, and is this. The rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way till Revelation 22 fits under what's called a covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. So as far as looking at these three, this one's the whopper. It covers a lot of information um, in God's book. So the covenant of grace. This is where salvation will be made to anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone. Anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, he is the savior of the world and it is by his grace that you are saved. That is the covenant that God makes with humanity after the fall. It will continue to the return of Christ, so the very end of time as we know it. And each actual biblical covenant that we looked at when Chris taught, those biblical covenants that are straight out of the scriptures, um, kind of guide it along or, or kind of give it some, some direction, this covenant of grace. So those who through faith become a part of this one, uh, this covenant of grace um, form one and only one people of God. This people is the church or true Israel. The church or true Israel. So this position holds that even in the Old Testament, looking back now from the New Testament and when it's completed, if you are someone who put your faith in the coming Messiah, then you would be a part of the church, the true Israel. So they combine all, of, all believers into one group, not multiple, not two, not more than that. And that is called the church or true Israel. Now I want to dissect, dissect this a little bit. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut in um, and, uh, and, and hopefully expose just a few things that I think um, uh, are maybe not as helpful, but we'll look at this together. Um, again, I want to think more critically, more biblically about these things. Here's a few concerns with the system of uh, covenant theology. So... Okay, so dissecting, okay? First of all, these theological covenants are not directly stated in the Bible. And it is important to build our theology the best we can around what the Bible does say. So if there are covenants in the Bible that God has clearly said, this is my covenant I'm making with you, that carries weight more so even than someone who looks at the Bible and says, it seems that God is doing this, so he's made a covenant with man. Um, we have to be careful about um, taking our, our core theological signposts and, uh, and taking them um, as an extrapolation from Scripture rather than directly from Scripture itself. So that's just one uh, concern off the bat that uh, maybe you already caught it as I was you know, sharing earlier. These theological covenants are not directly stated in the Bible and it is important to build our theology around the, what the Bible does say. Now, the second uh, concern with this system, as we, as we cut in, it might be on the next slide. Yeah, all right, so let's give two there. All right, so the covenant of grace combines all of God's work with man into one promise. So if you think about it, you remember where that covenant of grace goes? It goes from the very beginning, Genesis 3, all the way to the very end, and and so it includes all of that. So you take this covenant of grace and it combines all of God's work with man into one promise without recognizing the important distinctions at different periods of history. 
This is one of the, I think, one of the concerns that would uh, be here as well. Now, if you, if you fold all the biblical covenants together, um, conditional and unconditional, you've got the Abrahamic covenant, you've got the Palestinian covenant, you've got the Davidic covenant, you've got the new covenant, and you've got the Mosaic covenant. That's the, the one that's different than the others because it's, it's a con- unconditional, or sorry, it's conditional, right? And you put those together and say that they all fit under this covenant of grace, it makes it a little confusing. Uh, just say it straight out. Um, it, it, it makes it a little hard to know um, the differences between those covenants. So when God, for instance, promises, uh, a, a, a promises God's promises and commands found in the law of Moses, this Mosaic covenant are given to Israel. Uh, as the church, we, we don't understand how they apply to us. And so we think kind of for a moment, you go, well, what about those verses that are directly um, written by God through Moses to this people, Israel? Um, if we're all under one covenant of grace, how is it, this, is it exactly the same then for, for me as it was a Jew two, 3,000 years ago? Or is there a distinction? And, and that's where I think more care needs to be given as you set up a system of looking at eschatology. When you look at the difference of, even in your own Bible, if you've all read, you know there are how many testaments? There's another finger game. Yeah, two. There it is, right? So two, right? Old and New Testament. So there's a lot of setup in the Old Testament about what comes into the New Testament. And so you have this setup for a reason, because the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus. That's John 1.17, direct quote. So there is a distinction even in the, the way that the testaments are divided. There's a change. And when you just use the label of covenant of grace over both testaments, it almost doesn't recognize some of the distinction or the shift of gears that happens even just between testaments, old and new. So the, the, the law is something that's a little tricky to, to understand and figure out because that's just rolled right in um, at, at the same time with the other covenants. Now, the New Testament, this is really helpful. All right, the New Testament teaches very clearly and directly and repeatedly that we are not under the Old Testament law of Moses any longer. We've been hitting that in Romans uh, chapter 7, the first few verses. You can look at later in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Um, you can go into Hebrews. You can go into 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. The New Testament believer does not have an obligation to the Old Testament law of Moses. You are set free from that law. Only Christ could could perfectly fulfill that law. And so he has done that on our behalf. And when Christ comes and he fulfills that law and does what no man could do, we are free from that law in the Old Testament, given to Israel. And now you might think, well, hey, no law, so how then should I live? Well, you are under a new law. No longer the law of Moses, as you might think, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, kind of what's found in the heart of the law in the Old Testament, but you've got this thing called the law of Christ. The law of Christ. This is in the New Testament, And it's almost kind of the New Testament counterpart to the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And these are the commands that Jesus gave us to love our neighbor as ourself. 
These are the commands that, that he charged his apostles to come and, and share with the church. These are the commands that he gave the prophets to share with us in our New Testament letters. This contains the law of Christ. And this is what we get to gladly live out because of what Christ has done uh, for us. Uh, on the next slide, uh, the third di- distinction or, or criticism here would be that the Bible does not teach that the church has replaced Israel. The Bible does not teach that the church has replaced Israel, which means that the church is a distinct entity, meaning different than Israel, and this means that God will be faithful to fulfill all his promises to Israel in the future. Now, this is a distinctly dispensational thought, and so um, this is coming from the other side. Um, If you were to look at covenant theology and go, well, it it appears that God was working with Israel, this like people group in the Old Testament, and then he was like done with them because they didn't treat Jesus very well, if you remember that, um, the crucifixion. So then after that, uh, he's done with Israel, uh, park it with you guys and and you're out of here. Now he's shifted gears and he's just working with the church. So you, you might... You might have heard people talk about how the church has replaced Israel or the church has superseded Israel and gone out in front. Um, the church has, uh, is fulfilling Israel's uh, uh, promises. Maybe there's a lot of different words where you can basically, you're boil, boiling it down to its replacement theology. Israel done, church going. But... Uh, this, this covenant theology uh, system that holds to this replacement theology uh, belief can be rejected for a number of reasons looking through the scriptures. Um, I would love to unpack this more. This is a tightly packed suitcase. If I could just snap those buttons and just let it pop out and we could talk about this more, that would be um, wonderful, but we don't have time for that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point your attention to a, a, um, a book called Has the Church Replaced Israel? It's by a guy named Michael Vlock. V-L-A-C-H is his last name. He was my theology professor at the Master Seminary in Sun Valley in California, um, and, uh, and he's done an excellent job writing to this question. Has the church replaced Israel? He gives these quick points, so I'll give them to you in bullet fashion. He says, the Bible explicitly teaches the restoration of the nation of Israel. He's going to restore Israel, the nation. The Bible explicitly promises the perpetuity, or it will perpetuate, of the nation of Israel. Third, the New Testament reaffirms a future restoration for the nation of Israel. So it wasn't just the Old Testament, it was actually the New Testament also that talks about how God has a plan to restore and save all Israel. Fourth, the New Testament reaffirms that the Old Testament promises and covenants to Israel are still the possession of Israel. They still have those. God is still holding true to his promise to Israel about those covenants. Fifth, New Testament prophecy affirms a future for Israel. Sixth, the New Testament maintains a distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, Nowhere does in the New Testament um, the the word church uh, uh, um, and Israel uh, become used interchangeably as if they were both referring to the same thing. The doctrine of election is proof that God has a future for Israel as well. 
Now, I commend that book to you, and, uh, and as I mentioned, that's a light coverage. Um, but basically, uh, we would reject replacement theology, which looks at God uh, and, and being done with his treatment of Israel, and then taking his focus on Israel and shifting it to us, taking his promises that he made to Israel and then pointing them over to us and not pointing them at them any longer. It was kind of a, a complete replacement. And we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, D, uh, here, I believe we have it, yeah. Um, covenant theology interprets some passages literally. You could even say most passages literally. Might even give, give that as far as my study goes. Um, covenant theology interprets some or most passages literally, but others allegorically or spiritually, which is an inconsistent approach to biblical interpretation. So when you're looking at all this and how to approach the Bible and you're trying to figure out uh, how should we go about making sense of the Bible, you're going to have kind of two different camps the way that you read the Bible. If you read something and you go, oh, that sounds like God is meaning this, but it just sounds that way to you or you kind of like that there might be a deeper meaning or another meaning than what it literally means, then you're reaching. And in that moment, you're, you're taking um, authority into your own hands to say what it actually means rather than to find what the authorial intent of the passage is really saying. So when we approach God's word, we want to hear from God through those human authors and we want to understand the authorial intent. That just means the intent of the author. And when we read it, we try to take it as straightforward as possible, like you would take uh, a letter or a correspondence from, from someone that you have written to or is writing you, and you would read that very carefully and go, what do they mean by these words? And you try to dissect it and look at it carefully. There's an adage that goes around, and I love this, and it's something I think we can hang our hats on, and it says, uh, when the plain sense seeks sense, or sorry, makes sense, seek no other sense. So when the plain sense of the Bible makes sense, you don't have to look for another sense. But if you see where a passage is saying, oh, trees clap your hands, you're trying to picture like trees with like human hands. You're going, that's a creepy dream, right? You know, uh, clapping stuff. You go, oh, well, this is clearly a metaphor. So the plain sense didn't make sense there. So clearly the, the author is not intending for you to have the visual of hands in mind, but trees swaying. So take, for instance, Genesis 12. This is where I want to anchor our thoughts a little bit to Scripture, if we could. So, And this is something that uh, Chris has touched on, but I want to um, keep, keep our eyes on this, because this is the, the mother of all covenants. Um, theologians actually call it that, too. So, um, so the mother covenant is really this Abrahamic covenant that starts in uh, Genesis 12, laid out in verses 1 to 3. Turn there with me. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." Now, this is a prime example of how to take this figuratively and how to take this literally. You can look at this and go, okay, what is this literally saying? When I read this, 
I see God have a sense of authority. He uses a couple of words multiple times. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it shows that he's driving at something. He doesn't sound like he's setting up a conditional statement saying, now if you do this, then you can have that. This isn't how he's talking here. This is very almost like God is just saying it so and it's going to happen. That's how I read this. That's the sense that I get from Moses writing this piece. Uh, when you look at it, it seems like God is saying, Abram, he'll later be called Abraham, move. Literally, move. A geographical location from where you, uh, your hometown to another place. I'm going to show you where that is. So he's got some sense of land in his mind. God has taken him to a different land or soil, if you want to call it that. Um, and then, uh, then what does he kind of say next? Well, he's talking about how he's going to make his family pretty great. Great meaning they're, they're going to be multiplying like crazy. Rabbits. You know, and they're going to gonna fill this land. They're going to have a lot of descendants. You know, a lot of kids. Those kids are going to have a lot of kids. And, and it's going to become a great nation. You kind of think, wow, that's a, that's a long way down history to think about your family when it starts off with mom and dad, no kids, to then first layer, kids, second layer, grandkids, third layer, great grandkids, and then just kind of picture that go out and then it become a nation someday. It, this is pretty wild to think about what he's telling him. So that not only does he promise um, him soil or the land, but he's promising him his, a seed, talking about his, his uh, progeny, his descendants will be great in this land. And then thirdly, he's promising him salvation. That, that word blessing just keeps coming up. You'll be blessed, blessed, blessed. He's not just responding to a sneeze. He's saying this is a, a, this is a, t- a kind of blessing that when God does this, he is taking you and removing you from a place of cursing, in this world that we're all under because of sin, and he's going to flip that and show you this kind of blessing, almost what it's like to live back in the garden before the curse came. That's what blessing means, this kind of, this kind of unhindered relationship that you had with God and with people before sin entered. That kind of blessing is what he's talking about, and it's going to extend into relationships and through the land and through all the things that your hand touch. And so he's got soil, seed, and salvation. God is being, uh, is being very clear, I think being very clear, that he's promising these things to Abraham. So when I read this, and when we read this a couple of weeks ago, I'm thinking that this is exactly what God is going to do. There's going to be a special people coming from Abraham. They're going to be in a special place. God cares about that place for some reason. He picked that place. And for some reason, he picked that guy, Abraham. And, and for some reason, he's going to pick his kids, and, and it's going to be a, a really wild story. If you follow and trace all his kids, that's what the Bible does. It kind of follows this and shows you God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. And you think he's going to, be, he's going to have this great size, this, this people that's going to become known as Israel or the Israelites. And they're going to be in this land, this, this promised land. And he says, through them, he says, Abraham, through your family that's going to get huge in this place, through them, not just your family will become a nation, but all the other nations on the earth are going to receive the kind of blessing that I'm going to show to you. Like, whoa, this is a really cool promise. I mean, all the things that are adding up inside of this, and you go, well, this is, this is really great. Now, if you fast forward and if you read through the, old, the rest of the Old Testament and you look into 
um, the New Testament and you see what happens. You see Abraham's descendants not play so well with God. They, they want to do their own thing. They want to go their own way. They want to have everything done according to how they see it being fit. And so when God himself comes in the flesh to his people that he promised blessing, you would think that they would recognize him. And you would think that they would look at him and go, our king, the one, this is the seed of Abraham who can bring blessing and reverse the curse. You would think that they would see him as such. Some do because the Holy Spirit removed just the blindness from their eyes to see the truth. But Israel rejects the Savior. Now you have a choice to make here. You can say, well, because Israel treated Jesus the way that they did. You can look at the New Testament and say, well, then these promises back in Genesis 12 that he made with a people, I'm talking ethnic Jews, the people of Israel in a particular land, that didn't work. They didn't want it. It didn't take. So now we're going to replace them and we're going to apply those promises that I gave to that people. I'm going to give it to a different kind of people, Jew and Gentile in one man. That's going to be the church. So covenant theology supports that kind of reinterpretation of Genesis 12 that it no longer matters if you are ethnic Jews. This promise has now shifted. And I, I think that there's just a problem when you approach Scripture that way. And you know what? You'll continue reading the rest of the Old Testament. It'll get really hard to know what to make of these certain passages when it's always saying that Israel will be saved, Israel will be, will be uh, rescued. And you see all these things and you're going, could he really be talking about ethnic Israel, the, the Jews? Is he really talking about them? Or is that us? Every time... I've heard a lot of people say, or I've heard people say that when they look back into the Old Testament and they see Israel, you should swap out church because that's really what it means. And I just go, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's how we can approach the scriptures. That seems like we're, we're cutting and pasting and that seems like we're, we're determining what the meaning is and we're saying something that God is not directly and plainly saying. So I read this and I go, there is, there is a sense that God is speaking with authority. He will do this. For his people Israel, what God promised to Israel, to Israel he will keep. If we can't take God seriously about how he made promises to Israel, how can we take God seriously when he makes promises to us? You have to, you have to correlate it that way. If you look at it and go, okay, God treated this people group this way, and they kind of had a hard time, and they really made some bad <laughs> Decisions, they disobeyed big time. All right, now, tear, remove, done, somebody else. Now, if he treated one people that way, why wouldn't he treat us that way? So we have to think through these things when we approach Scripture and look at it and, and, uh, and ask, is this an unconditional covenant that God is making with Israel? Then shouldn't we expect him to be faithful to carry it out? So let's uh, shift gears now into what is a, another system, the other system I'm going to finish um, with this. So this will go a little bit faster because essentially what we've been doing as we've been cutting in and dissecting is looking 
um, really at the, at the other view, dispensational theology. So if you can find that slide, might be a few in, in the way. These are awesome verses. Uh, didn't have time to go through them. But system two, dispensational theology. Now, covenant theology and dispensational theology are those two old war horses on the field. They've been around for a long time, and, and uh, while covenant theology has been around since um, the early 17th century, dispensationalism is relatively new to the scene, beginning uh, in the early to mid-19th century. So that's really not that long ago for dispensationalism to be recognized as its own system. Maybe 200 years after covenant theology kind of became its own system, and people started to say, oh, I think the same way. I think we should approach the scriptures the same way. So uh, in dispensationalism... Uh, though it be a, a relatively new um, system of theology um, that targets the church and end times, let me make that clear too. When you're talking about dispensationalism, you're not talking about soteriology, you're not talking about uh, uh, your theology proper, you're not talking about um, uh, your bibliology, you're not talking about these different things that are theologies of man, God, sin, salvation, um, grace, faith, those things. You're talking about the church and you're talking about end times. That's what dispensationalism is, is getting at. So looking at when it kind of came about, you see people in places like Nelson uh, Darby, you've got the, the Brethren Movement having some impact uh, in there, uh, D.L. Moody, C.I. Schofield, and his reference Bible that he, that he kind of made some of this dispensationalism more clear in. You've got Dallas Theological Seminary, which had a, a big part um, in, uh, in dispensationalism uh, becoming together as a system and a, and a school that supported it and taught it. Lewis Sperry Schaefer in his Systematic Theology, and you have a couple other works, and these were kind of the, the beginnings of it gaining traction and becoming popular. There was, um, there's more that could be said on that, but, but first of all, just defining dispensational theology. So, so defining uh, dispensationalism and describing it here. It is a system of theology that views God working in our world in different ways over time. So it involves the theology of the church and of end times, but this is God working in our world in different ways over time. That's, you know, simply put. You could say it this way. Covenant theology starts with a C, right? C for covenant. Um, and, uh, and it emphasizes more of a continuity. There's another C, so I'm going to just link those words up for you, okay? Continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you're a covenant theologian, you see more continuity or more like similarities between the Old Testament and the New Testament, almost sometimes to the extreme to where you see no distinction at all. Now, dispensational theology starts with a, not a C, but a D. So that D word is discontinuity. So, or if you want a, a D, another D word, uh, differences or distinctions. So really, dispensational theology looks at the Old and New Testament and sees more of a, a, a differentiation made or a difference made a discontinuity between Old and New Testament when you're talking about the people of God, the law of God. Now, the word dispensation comes from Greek. It's a compound word, meaning two words kind of go together and they form one. Um, it could mean economy or stewardship because it's really this word house and manage. So uh, to, to manage a household. So kind of have an economy or stewardship over something. When used in eschatology, dispensation, a dispensation is this distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. So a, dis a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. 
So God has a certain purpose, and he's going to work it out a certain way, and it's going to be obvious, and there's going to be distinction in the way he carries it out. For example, think about life on earth before the fall, managed differently than you think of life on earth when Christ comes to reign on the earth. Think about when life on the earth was, was God reigning as Israel's king, a theocracy. It's a good president, right, to have God himself be your king. Um, and so God operated and worked in a way then that is different than when God had sent his son to build his church. There's some things that change. When God changes the way he deals with his creation, you have a new dispensation. So when God changes the way that he's dealing with his creation, you have kind of this new dispensation. Some people get uh, you know, more excited about saying, there are seven dispensations, or there's, there's eight. You know, I've seen as many as ten. I've seen as low as three. You know, the, the number doesn't totally matter. Um, the, the point is that there are these different dispensations where God is working with his creation in different ways. Now, describing dispensational theology a little bit, uh, while there are different dispensations, this does not mean that there's different ways of salvation. Everybody hear that? We are not talking about how God saved Israel and that was different than how he saved the church. And we're not talking about how he he saved a a people at one time uh, differently than how he saved a people at another time. God's way of salvation has always been by grace through faith in the work of Christ. Always has never changed. God does not change that. Dispensations are not different ways of salvation, but different ways God administers his rule in this world. Different ways that God works out his rule in this world. Um, You could identify dispensationalism most easily when there is, one, a distinction made between God's program for Israel and the church, and two, a consistently literal interpretation of Scripture. So I'm just going to give you those, those two things to think about. And you go, okay, well, if I'm reading something or listening to someone preach or, hearing, uh, or reading a book on end time stuff, or if I, I read some fictional thing and it's talking about end times things, um, if you see a distinction made between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church, if there's a distinction, you're probably looking at dispensational theology. If you are reading something or hearing something that has a consistently literal interpretation of Scripture without making these uh, spiritualizations about the text, then you're probably looking at dispensational theology. Um, on the lighter side, it's, it's like trying to figure out the difference between a monkey and an ape. All right? If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey, even if it has a monkey kind of shape. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey, it's an ape. Anybody heard that before? Yeah, okay. So uh, that's from, that's from our veggie tales. All right, so um, <laughs> I'd slip something in there. It's kind of, you know, bring us down a little bit here. Um, so if it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. Even if it has a monkey kind of shape. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. It's an ape. That's how Larry says it, right? So too, if you're reading or listening to something having to do with end times, if it doesn't separate Israel and the church, it's not dispensationalism, even if it has a dispensationalism kind of take. If it doesn't interpret scripture literally, it's not dispensationalism, it's a fake. 
All right? So those are the two things I want to give you this year. You're thinking through, well, how can I see you know, what this is and what is really um, the, the, the defining or uh, describing characteristics of it. So Israel and the church are two different uh, entities. God works in a different way with them. You can refer to them as the people of God, and that catches both of them. But as you talk about the people of God in the Old Testament, you're talking about a nation of Israel began beginning with uh, Abraham and this promise in Genesis 12. When you're talking about the people of God in the New Testament and into today, you're talking about the church. When did the church begin? Did the church begin in Genesis 12 with God's promise to Abraham? No, the church, the word church wasn't even used in the Old Testament. Church was barely even used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was used twice in Matthew, but really it's something that came at Acts 2, the book of Acts chapter 2. That's when the church started, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh, when Jesus ascended to heaven to rule over his church as its head. That's when the church started. So these are two different entities. Israel always means the descendants of Jacob. Even after the beginning of the church, Israel was still regarded as a distinct entity. New Testament verses even do that. To say that the church is the new Israel is a biblical misstep. Now, developing the dispensational theology, this is the final point here I want to make about dispensational theology before we close. It has developed a little bit. Some of you, you know, might work at the, you know, the Apple, you know, or something, and there's always these updates to the, your operating system. Um, you kind of, ooh, I wonder what's going to be on this new update. You know, ah, oh, now it's reading my face. Um, you know, oh, there's, there's emojis that, that, like, you know, animate or something. Um, so, so dispensationalism similarly has gone through some updates to their operating system. Um, today, there are three brands of dispensationalism. There's classical or traditional. That's like the first one. Then there's revised. Makes sense that that came after, right? Revised. Surprise, surprise. Then there's progressive. Okay, progressive. So classical or traditional. Then there's revised and there's progressive dispensationalism. Classical, let's start with the classics, give them their right place, started in, and kind of was championed from like 1830 to 1940. 1830 to 1940, classical dispensationalism was popular and being popularized. It was written in a lot of different ways. It was uh, promoted in a lot of different ways. But it emphasized discontinuity between the Old and New Testament so much. I mean, it drew the fattest line down between Old and New Testament. Church, Israel, stay away from each other. That's, that's, where, the, that's where it started. So it was very radical, um, and, uh, and the church um, had, uh, had kind of like its own new covenant. It was like Israel had their new covenant, the church had their new covenant. You're kind of thinking, like, how are we getting these two different new covenants um, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes you wonder, is Jesus talking to us? I mean, this is New Testament, but he's, but he's still working with Israel, sort of. And so they would say that the Sermon on the Mount was only relevant to, um, to the Jews in the coming millennial kingdom, not the church age. Um, and there's a few other things that classical dispensationalists hold to um, that, uh, that was the beginning Okay, but then um, update that operating system to the revised position. You've got, you've got some different ways of thinking. So between 1950 and 1985, there were some re revisions made, I think for the better. That's my opinion as I study this topic. 
There are some revisions being made. It loosened some of the sharper distinctions between Israel and the church. It relaxed this whole um, dichotomy that, uh, that the church is going to be in heaven and, the, and Israel is going to be on the earth and they're going to be separate from each other. And kind of relaxed that and said, no, they'll be together in the way that God works out his plan. Um, the classical traditional view didn't have the church and Israel together in the future, had them separate from each other, but the revised position includes the church and Israel as together in the future, talking about uh, when Christ returns. Now, while their eternal destiny was the same, Israel and the church are always kept distinct for God's specific roles and his responsibilities for them. There's one new covenant, not two. I think that was a helpful revision. Uh, the church currently participates in the new covenant through Christ's blood, as he made it clear, while Israel will not experience the full fulfillment of the new covenant until Christ returns and restores the nation of believing Israel. So there's some revisions there. Now, progressive dispensationalism is a 1985 to present, and, uh, and I would say that I'm most in this camp, but really appreciate a lot of the um, the revised position as well. So progressive isn't just kind of this cool, hip term to kind of show that you're with it. You know, I'm progressive. You know, yeah, what kind of music do you have? Progressive, you know. Um, what kind of clothes do you wear? Progressive. Um, you know, it's not, it's not I'm talking about that. Um, basically, it's talking about how the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants are progressing today. So you might think for a while, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Those were given to Israel. So how could they be being carried out today. Well, this, what this progressive dispensational view has done, also revised view, is taken this extreme discontinuity and pushed it toward more of the middle. You've got covenant theologians that are extreme over here saying that there's, there's, there's nothing different between church and Israel. Old and New Testament, one covenant of grace, and that's kind of more of an extreme. But there's even some covenant theologians that are, that are kind of leaning more toward the middle, what I think is more of a balanced view. And so this progressive dispensationalism, I think, really does move away from this really sharp distinction between Israel and the church and shows that God is actually working out some of those promises in certain ways now through what Christ has done and accomplished. And he has the fullness of them to be worked out in that millennial kingdom, which gets me super excited because when I read certain passages in the New Testament, I see that God still has a plan for Israel. I think you can amen with me on that. That, that God has a plan for Israel, but that just because they rejected him, he is not going to reject them permanently, but temporarily. He's going to temporarily put them aside, and he's going to extend these blessings from the covenant to other people, other nations. Jews are going to start getting jealous because they're going to see other people that are not like them, not ethnic Jews, and they're going, well, hey, wait a minute. How are you experiencing some of the blessings that our father Abraham was promised? How are you starting to, to experience those? Well, it's because of what Christ has done in uniting us to him. If you look at Paul's verbiage, the way he talks about it, it it's, it's kind of like uh, uh, terms of cutting a, a branch off that was not bearing fruit. So Israel was not bearing fruit. He cuts them off. He lays them aside. Now he's taking these other branches, these wild branches. Y'all are a bunch of wild branches, what you are. And he takes us and then he grafts us into where he made that cut from. That means that those, those, those promises that were made to Israel 
are, are extended to us, extended to us, not made to us, but we get to benefit with Israel in this because of Christ. So that's what this progressive dispensationalism view does is it kind of pushes things this direction to where it shows you that God actually, as he works throughout the, the Bible from beginning to end, shows that he is still going to be faithful with the Abrahamic covenant to his people Israel. And he's grafting us in, showing us that he has this promise that he is making. And that's why if you go back, I'm rooting everything in Genesis 12, to 12, 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You wonder how that's going to happen. It's through the rejection of Israel for a time. For a time. They're on timeout. Israel is on timeout. They're going to get a spanking during the tribulation. And then when he comes back at the second coming, he's going to be restored to his people and he's going to hug them and they're going to have tears in their eyes. That's what's going to happen with Israel. It's parental. He loves them. You probably spank your kids. That's loving. What is going to happen for Israel in the future is they are going to get a licking and it's going to hurt them. But they're going to realize what they have done. They're going to realize that when Christ came the first time, they crucified him. When he comes the second time, they're going to receive him. This is exciting. God is going to be faithful to his promise to Israel. And right now when they're on timeout, they're looking out the window, seeing Gentiles play in, in God's world in the church and, and just looking at it going, wait, why did they have peace? Wait, why, why do they have restored relationships? Wait, why do they have hope of heaven? Why, why do they have, well, they have a Messiah. They have Jesus. So you have to think about this very clearly and not miss what I'm saying. He's not done with Israel, but he has included us into it as if he's grafting us in to these promises that he's made to Israel. He's extending his plan. And that's where you can see this dispensation is one in which he is adding on to um, what, he has, what he has done. Wrapping up, you, you look uh, down here at, at the end. Um, uh, I'm not sure if what we had after that. I think that was the last slide. But um, Israel, <laughs> they may never win a World Cup. Um, but, uh, but God has a plan for them that is much bigger than that. A promised land with an eternal king and full salvation from sin. And we get to be a part of that. So I hope this message will help us begin to open up a dialogue and start thinking about how God is working in time, throughout time, and when we begin to talk about the end times, we'll see, okay, what's God doing now? How is he working with Israel? What's he going to do with the church? How is he going to incorporate all these things and be faithful to his promises? If you are someone who is a, 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 you know, a dispensationalist um, and you're excited about this but you have questions, I want you to ask those questions. If you're a covenant theologian in here and you're either you're a closet covenantal or you're loud and proud about it, you know, either way, um, I'd love to dialogue with you about these things. Um, I'm still learning a lot and I think I have a lot to learn. And so there's question cards at the back and uh, and. When we wrap up here, um, when I pray, we'll even have uh, elders coming up front um, to answer the questions to all the 
things that I didn't say right. So <laughs> that'll be fun. All right, so when we get back together, we'll be working through uh, the rapture uh, to the end. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your relentless love. We see how from the very beginning, no amount of, of unfaithfulness to you could stop you from loving your own, your people. And so what you've done in this unique and, and, and wonderful period of, of the church age is you have brought us into these spiritual blessings. Your Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. We have the law written on our hearts. We have forgiveness of sin. You call us your people, similar to how you referred to Israel. You called them your people throughout ages of their unfaithfulness to you. And God, one day when you return to this earth and you establish your kingdom, we'll understand more of those material blessings as well. When you are king, establishing your throne, the throne that is in heaven, be brought to the earth, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to be a part of that because of your kindness. Lord, we are marveling right now at your great and grand plan, and I pray that nobody in this room misses what is at stake here. That we would know who Jesus is, that, that one singular seed, that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're beginning to know the blessings of our salvation in such great measure, and, and it will come in such fullness when you return. So Lord, bring it. Come quickly, come soon, end our pain, wipe our tears, tell us that sorrow is no more, bring joy that never ceases, restore relationships that have been broken, and Lord, establish your kingdom here. And uh, Lord, until then, we want to live fit for your coming kingdom. We love you and thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.